Welcome to the Modern Balance Podcast, where it is all about achieving your work-life balance. Tune in each week as we present the insights and strategies to guide you to live better. Now, here is your host, Mark Law. And this week we have Dr. Jimmy Turner, who had had a tough upbringing, dropped out from high school, but persisted to become a doctor and is now a leader in organizational management. So it's nice to have you here, Dr. Jimmy. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. So let's discuss your upbringing. So you grew up in rural poverty? Yeah, so I actually spent about half of my growing up years in uh, an area called Oak Ridge in Tennessee, which is just outside of Knoxville. And then the other half of my growing up years uh, just outside of Chattanooga in the Harrison area. And so both of those are fairly, Oak Ridge being more rural at the time than Harrison, which had some some more of the suburbs and stuff. But um, as somebody who now spends a lot of time and has around urban poverty, I've recognized the differences as an adult of of what we went through in rural poverty versus urban poverty. In, In rural poverty, you don't have social services out there. You don't have uh, these agencies that are just on standby looking for people to help. You don't have people intentionally coming out to you right. when it's more rural. And it's not to say that we didn't have people around who would help, but you're depending more on your family, on your neighbor, on friends that you make than anything else. Yeah. And, and where we were, you know, so we were a family of, of five, two parents and, and three boys in this two bedroom house. So the, Obviously, our parents shared one room, and then the three boys, we shared another room. The bathroom was so small that if you were sitting on the toilet, your feet were in the shower. (laughs) And if you were going into the bathroom, you had to step in and then turn sideways so you could get the door to close just to be able to go in there and have some privacy. Uh, Very small house. And we made the most of it uh, with what we had because... Part of it was we didn't realize that we were any different because we were just looking at everybody else who was kind of on that same street where we lived, and it was all pretty much the same. In terms of your childhood poverty, did you have to focus on surviving on a daily basis? You know, we weren't in a situation where we went hungry. Now, you know, we might have had rice and beans every day for a week, Um, you you know, so we weren't living on uh, uh, steaks and, and chicken and and locks every morning but yeah. we 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 were at a point where we knew we didn't have a lot you know we ate a lot of spaghetti a lot of bologna a lot of hot dogs things that were very inexpensive and and you know a goulash kind of became this uh, a fancy meal that we would have <laughs> that uh, really just turned out to be kind of all the leftovers from the last few days getting mixed together and turned into something right. that we could all eat um, so so we didn't go without in that regard Okay. But we did find that we were in some situations where, I mean, as, as a kid, as, as far back as I can remember, I have, have these memories of waiting for the power man to come by to turn off our property and having a check waiting right. by the front door so that when they pulled that up, sucks. we could give them the check to yeah. make sure they didn't turn off the power. Or if they did turn off the power, it was, we, we knew how to call and scheduled to get it turned back on. Right. And then uh, because of, of where we lived and it being a little more rural, we, we might be in the, 
doorway shining a flashlight out towards the road so that they would know how to find us and where to come back to to get to us. But comparatively, because you and your neighbors were in similar situations, did you think that you guys were less well off in terms of being content? Not at first. At first, because everything was just kind of normal, we we didn't know that we didn't have what other people had because we were in a very limited area. You know, we didn't have the internet back then. We didn't have social media. So we didn't know what everybody else had and what everybody else was doing. And schools were, you know, everybody went to recess and played with the recess stuff that was on the playground. You didn't bring your own stuff in and you weren't showing off what you had there. It wasn't until a little later in growing up that we actually moved. And when we moved, it changed us into a different school district. And we just happened to live in this one really inexpensive place that we could rent that put us into this other school district that was like the the more well-off people in that part of town. And we ended up suddenly running into people who had all this stuff that we'd never even seen or imagined, or we only saw it on commercials and thought people don't actually get that stuff because that's just stuff on TV. And now here we are with people who that's just a normal part of, of what they have, what they wear, what they play with. And, and we started to realize that there was a big difference between what we had and what we could do and, and what was going on with everybody else. Because you had initially grew up in different circumstances and you ended up where you are then, did that change the gratitude of what you already had? It did uh, to some degree, but then at the same time, in, in you know, our culture, it's just about wanting more. And so we're seeing all of our friends Definitely. have this. And the, the familiarity of what we're seeing with everybody else versus what we've got really, you know, made us realize that we stood out. We stood out against everybody else and not in a way that was going to make us the cool popular kids. It was going to make us the weird poor kids. Yeah, it is hard not to compare, especially when you're young and the culture focuses on having more. So it just makes it more difficult for people to appreciate what they already have. Absolutely. It, it was very difficult. Yeah. In terms of uh, how you perceive your childhood now, did you reckon that was a blessing to not be as economically fortunate as others? Absolutely, because now I'm in a, a place in my life where yeah. that, that world where I was as a kid, is, it, it just seems so far removed from, from now what I see as normal and what my, my kids have seen as normal. But I look back on it and I go, wow, there's so many life lessons that I learned by not having anything except for my little red rider wagon that I had to pull up and down the road or not having anything for my imagination and my bicycle that I could ride up and down the hill and imagine myself racing people or going so fast that people couldn't see me. And so I I realized that a lot of the, the, the analytical, critical thinking that I put into place in my life now really formulated in those early years where I didn't have anything that was going to take that away from me. Yeah, that's a great strategy to have. So how did you transition from high school to where you ended up now? Sure. So I, in, I guess it was about my junior year of high school, one of my closest friends, I mean, she she was my best friend, no doubt about it, had a recurrence of cancer that had struck her as a kid. 
Oh, right. And the, the doctors just knew they weren't going to be able to do anything about it. They, they tried to do the standard round of treatments, but it was such a rare instance of cancer and the, their ability to treat it was so limited. We kind of knew from the very beginning she wasn't going to make it. And I would, I would go to school and then I would leave school and I would drive across town to her house because she had her, her hospital bed set up in a room. And, and I just sit there yeah. with her and we'd talk and watch TV and just play cards and have a great time. That's great of you. There was a, a point in that where she ended up having to leave her home and, and be in the hospital for what was going to end up being the remainder of her life. And when that happened, I, I quit going to school and started going over to the hospital just every day. That's where I was. I'd go home and get a few hours of sleep, clean up, change clothes, and then go right back over to the hospital because I, I wanted to be there. I knew that it was just a matter of weeks before I would never be able to see her again. And no one close to me had ever died before. So this was, I didn't know how to let go of what I knew was going to be coming up. And when she finally passed, I took a couple of days to myself and I went back to school. And when I got there, I, I had actually kept up with the schoolwork. I was, I was on top of things, but I had missed so many days that the school told me I would have to repeat my junior year. And oh, wow. I, I couldn't do that. I could not fathom repeating my junior year and all of the peers that I'd made over the last several years since I moved to town and got to know all these people, they're going to move on to their senior year and graduate. And I'm going to spend another year in high school because instead of showing up to school, I, I stayed by my friend's side. So I figured out at that point that this isn't going to work for me. And both of my parents have been high school dropouts. And so because in my mind, it, to some degree, it was like with two parents who were high school dropouts, we did okay. And Damn. we weren't rich and we, weren't, we didn't have everything that we could have ever wanted, but we survived. We, we were healthy. We were happy. We were okay. So I thought, well, you know what? If they can drop out and do okay, I can drop out and do okay. I don't, you know, school doesn't have to be for me. I don't have to go to college. I can go and just get a job and enter the workforce and I'll be okay. Yeah. And the problem with that was I can't sign myself out of school until I'm 18 and my parents weren't going to sign me out of school because they'd always said, don't make the same mistake we did. Don't drop out of school. So I had to sit in class until I turned 18 for, for almost a year because uh, Star died in March of 99 and then I didn't oh. turn 18 until January of 2000. So I basically really figured out situation. what I needed to do. It was, and I just did the bare minimum to get by. And the, yeah. when I turned 18, I showed up to school. I walked into the school office and the assistant principal was right there waiting for me with the paperwork to sign myself out because she knew this was the decision I'd already made. She asked me one more time, is there anything I can do to talk you out of this? I just looked at her and I said, you already know there isn't. She slid the paperwork to me. I signed it. She made a copy of it. And I went down to the community college and signed up for the next GED test. And that was the end of my high school career. Yeah, it sucks how the schooling system did what they did because given your adversity, they should have had some leniency. Certainly. 
Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And that's one of the difficulties with anything institutional is they have to treat everybody with a universal standard and, and can't take into account the individual nature of what people are going through. Yeah. Like even if you put in the yards and you continued like having commitment in your schoolwork, they still wouldn't let you through. How did that end up Correct. shaping your educational perspective on college? It, it made me bitter is what it did. It, I can imagine. It made me say that, you know, if, if me prioritizing being with this person who's about to die, their life is coming to an end and, uh. and they're so young and, and I'm going to be penalized for that really for the rest of my life. Because being a high school dropout is, you know, this, this almost scarlet letter against you at the time, because, you know, this is back in the, the late 90s where everything was about go to college, go to college, go to college. High school's never going to be enough. You have to go to college if you want to make anything of yourself. Yeah. And the, the educational institution of, of my growing up years had basically said, you prioritized people over education and following the rules and conformity and therefore we're done with it. and and i kind of said that i'm done with you so it made me <laughs> bitter against the institution and it made me really hate the idea of rules it, it, it turned me really into sort of a an iconoclast against everything that was authority at the time yeah but i think uh that's also a good silver lining because that ended up shaping uh, your own independence to go pursue your own pursuits, which we'll go discuss now. So you ended up pursuing what course in college? Well, uh, when I went to college, I was almost 30. So it took quite a while before I got there. I, you know, right after high school, uh, I was actually married uh, while I was still 18. My wife yeah. was somebody that I, I met in high school. I went into the Marine Corps after that, and then after the Marine Corps, I went to work in, in corrections, and then out of corrections is, is when I started to pursue education. And so I went in originally pursuing a criminal justice degree because it's, it just felt like after spending a decade of my life in, in the military and in law enforcement that it just made sense that criminal justice would be the direction for me. And it was while I was in school that I was also in this like searching pattern in my life where I was questioning, was there a God? Was, was there any point to anything that we were doing? Was, you know, why are we here? How did we get here? All those sort of big questions about life that, that people ponder and the philosophers write books about. And in yeah. the midst of that, it, it led me down a path of, of soul searching myself, but then also looking for where I was going to find that, that meaning outside of family and, and career and, and those other things that you have into this metaphysical existence. And as I was studying, I, I went through the Eastern religions and, and some of the New Age stuff. And, and, and finally, as I just kind of kept shedding each of those as this isn't really something that I can wrap my head around intellectually or emotionally or, or whatever it is, I, I was, and because I was skeptical of everything, I'm questioning it and, and then I'm, I'm trying to check it against 
what's what can be judged empirically and, and what makes sense philosophically, I, I finally landed in, in, in the Christian faith. And it wasn't, I, I didn't have one of these like, at this moment, I, I break down and realize I'm this awful person and I need a savior. It was more like I was pursuing truth. And there was a point there in which I went from, I'm trying to figure this out if it's a real thing to, oh, wow, I can't wait to discover how this is going to prove itself to be true. And it was in the midst of that, I was lying in bed one night with my wife and, and she just turned to me and she says, you're a different person now. She just said that out of nowhere. So I mean, you know, this was obviously over the course of time. Yeah. And, and so right. it was like, she, she just says this and I, so I, I don't, I don't know what that is. She goes, I don't know either. It's just like, you're, you're kinder. You're more patient. You, you seem to have more compassion. You're, you're more self-aware. You're, you're, you know, you're giving us more of your time and attention. And I, I don't know what's changed, but you're different. Those are great compliments to have, especially from a partner. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it led me to kind of go, okay, well, what is different? And I realized that what had become different is I had, I had found this faith that I didn't just believe because, you know, it was the thing that your parents gave you or you went to Sunday school when you were a kid, but it was yeah. this, I had become convinced of it. I didn't just believe it. I was convinced of it. Yeah. And, and being convinced of it and, and really having that engaging a relationship, so to speak, with, with God of creation and, and the, the way that he has come to us, that changed me. And so then it was like, I don't want to do criminal justice. I want to go into some sort of ministry where I can work and do for other people, maybe in an easier way, what I just got from all of this. And so I, I left the school that I was in and moved to uh, another university, uh, it's called Tennessee Temple University, and I started pursuing a degree in the Bible because I thought, man, you know what, this is what I want to do. I want to be able to use this to, to do more. I don't know what that is. Maybe I'll go into pastoral ministry. Maybe I'll go into something else, but, but something about this is, is going to be what I do. Right. So, so that was where it led me to study that. So just to clarify for the listeners, you dropped out of high school and then you went to college during your 30s. What motivated you to enroll in university, given well, your actually, uh, experiences? Well, actually, there was, the, there was sort, of, sort of a backstory to that. Um, I, had, I had left working in law enforcement, and I had sent my resume to a recruiting agency to help me find a place. Right. And they called me one morning and said, hey, we've submitted your resume you know, for the security position. think it'll be a good fit for you. But we noticed that when you were filling out our paperwork, you said you'd be interested in pursuing higher education. And I said, yeah, I mean, that sounds nice, but I got, I got a family to take care of. So right now what I need to do is make money. And they said, well, are you aware of this post 9-11 GI Bill that's available to people who served on active duty in the military after 9-11? I said, well, I know about the Montgomery GI Bill, but I've, I've never heard of this. And so they tell me about it and they tell me that it will actually pay for my school and pay me a stipend to live off of. Thought, wow, I'm going to get paid to beneficial. go to school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so it was through that that I, I was willing to take the step 
to go get myself into school, which led me into that direction. Right. Yeah, I reckon sometimes you just have to pursue your means. So in this instance, this was to have financial security because you had a family and children. And then sometimes luck just goes on your side. Right, exactly. Yeah, I think we should be optimistic more often because when people experience setbacks, that's very common, especially during the current COVID-19 epidemic. People have lost their jobs and are experiencing financial setbacks. But if you're optimistic, then you're able to look forward to the future such that you can plan and focus ahead. Absolutely. You certainly have to keep a an idea in front of you that there has to be something you can do from this. Like I think about Viktor Frankl, who was, is a Holocaust survivor. He was at four different concentration camps. And he talked about one of the things that kept him going was thinking about how he would lecture the next generation of students in the classroom about what he went through and how he would use that to teach them lessons and make them better citizens of humanity in the future. Yeah. Yeah, Viktor Frankl started his own philosophy. He did, logotherapy. Yeah. Yeah, Viktor Frankl had a lot of experiences that he was able to share that were deep and disturbing insights so that he could teach others. Absolutely. So how did you end up pursuing organizational management in a doctorate degree? Well, it's funny because we, we have to kind of step backwards to get there. When I was still finishing up in the university, the year before I graduated, I got asked to go with some students at this school to Miami during spring break for this sort of short-term missions trip that we would go down there, we would work with an orphanage, we would work with some of the, the college ministry groups, and we would work with this homeless service center. And while I was there, it was working in the in the homeless service center it was the first time in my life i was ever forced to really have a face-to-face -face interaction with someone experiencing homelessness and the caricatures that i had in my mind of homelessness being drunk lazy people who just wouldn't pull themselves up by their bootstraps to get better fell away and i really started to see these people as people and it played back into my faith because the Bible would tell us that humanity is the pinnacle of all of God's creation. It was the most valuable thing that he put out there. And if I really believe that these people have been made in that image and likeness of God and had all this value, I should treat them like that. And that means that I have to tear away that idea that these are just bums who are lazy and, and drunk and say, these are people who are experiencing something, and if they need help, I should be there to give it to them. Yeah, definitely. So with that, when I got back to Chattanooga, I started volunteering my time and trying to help out with people experiencing homelessness in my own community. And it led me to see this gap in service for people who were camping and would not come into the local service centers that we had. Like we had a community kitchen and we've got our Salvation Army and we've got our rescue mission. But there's this whole group of people, hundreds of them, who would not come in and use those services and just stayed out to their own. And as I was looking around and I'm going, well, who's helping them? 
the answer I got repeatedly was, well, nobody. We're, we, we're, we got our hands full with the people who are coming here. We don't have any way of being able to go out and do anything. And I thought, I had that thought of, well, somebody should be doing that. And then, well, I'm somebody. Well, I should be doing that. And yeah. so I used that to actually start a nonprofit organization that provided outreach services on site to people experiencing homelessness. That's correct. And finishing up in, in my undergrad, I, I had money left over on my GI Bill. So I moved into a master's program at the seminary at the school, which was just a master's in ministry, which really focused more on running an organization that's based in Christian ministry and, and how to use that to further link the, the direct connection of our faith into the services that we provide. Right. And uh, as I was finishing up my master's program, I'm still running this agency. I have all this stuff going on. The agency is like blown up. You know, it was more than I could have ever imagined it was going to be. And I'm looking at it and, and one of the school administrators says, you know, you should really sign up for a PhD program. I said, man, look, I'm not signing up for a PhD program. I said, I was happy to get through college. I only did the master's because I basically had a little bit left on my GI Bill. Like, I'm a high school dropout, and I'm about to have a master's degree, and that's already cool enough. Just beyond, I mean, having a college degree was already really cool. And I'm just more focused on, I want to do a great job with this organization that I have and serving the people that are out there that we're trying to help. Yeah. Wouldn't you experience any self-doubt given how you already have a college degree? And that you had a tough childhood? I mean, you know, here I am. I, I still kind of pictured myself as the, the five-year-old kid in Oak Ridge with the Red Rider wagon, not somebody who is pursuing this doctor of philosophy, somebody who's going to be looked up to as, as somebody of, of scholarly knowledge and, and critical thought. Like, I'm just this little poor kid in Oak Ridge. I'm not picturing myself as, as that. And the fact that I've, I've already now got a college degree, I've started this organization, I'm finishing up a master's program, the whole thing already seems surreal enough for me to get my head around that the idea of, of going into PhD studies was just absurd. What made you push forward? Was it a come to Jesus moment or was there more to it? I think it was really about, it really came back to the faith aspect because if I had kind of reached this point of, of frustration against cultural Christianity, which is really prevalent in the area where I live, and saying, you know, it's got to be more than lip service. It's, if, if we truly believe this, like, you know, if I'm truly convinced that this stuff is true, it should affect the way that I interact with people. And so if I believe That's a great that point. these people experiencing homelessness are truly the people that God created and, and came into mankind to save because he cared so much about them. But like, like one of my, my go-to like kind of favorite verses to go back to is in the, the book of Romans. And, and it says, and God proved his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's like that call to action that says, I'm going to, I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm going to do it. And if, if that's what, love is, if that's what it means to be really convinced of this, then we should be doing nothing less than being called to action for it. So I think it really came back to that faith piece for me. Yeah. So it was from your call to actions to help others that made the difference between what others did and what you decided to do. So specifically, you took the initiative to help the homeless people. Right. 
And it's also how it ended up leading me into the, the PhD that I focused on in organizational management, because I, as a kid, I saw people in, in leadership as, as royalty, sort of. Like, like they were born right. to do that. They, they grew up in a different setting to be those people. And that wasn't me. I was the poor kid who grew up to work for those people. And, and now here I am, this guy who's leading this agency, and I've got all these people who are working with me, and we're doing all this work. And I need to make sure that I am the best that I can be for the folks who are willingly working with me and the folks that we're trying to serve as well. So when I saw this PhD program in, the, in this uh, Center for Leadership Studies, I, I said, that's what I want to do right there. I want to, to jump in. I want to know about how people work and, and, and what behavior does and how these things are affected because leadership isn't just the, the people that you manage on a day-to-day basis. It's casting that vision. It's, it's inspiring people to move forward. It's rallying people around an idea and creating buy-in and moving towards it. I, I mean, you know, at its base level, a leader yeah, implies care. a follower. And so how, how am I doing anything good for that follower, so to speak, if I don't know how to be a leader? And I, I was like, oh man, this, this PhD opportunity, as much as I don't really feel like I'm worthy of it or, or should even take the time to do it, there really is something here that I can take from it. And that was why I was willing to pursue it. And that was why I really went after it. Yeah, you made a good point on how people become leaders. So what would you say was the transition from you helping others to then lead and teach others? In the midst of my studies, I I had the opportunity to start, uh, I was actually getting calls from people all over the world who were going, hey, we heard about what you're doing in Chattanooga, and we want to know how we can do that in our town. And, and this was all over the U.S. and India and Nepal. And, you know, I'm hearing, uh, you know, I'm getting these calls from people and they're asking me what we can do here. So I just started telling them, oh, here's, here's what I did. And I, I just broke it down for them. It wasn't a, a magic formula. It was I did, identified a need and I, I saw a gap in service and I just started filling that gap, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, nobody really liked that answer. So I, I used it as a time to just start really asking them questions about what was going on in their community, what they knew, and, and then from that, helping them to formulate how they can take their passion and desire to, to get out and do something and actually put that into practice. And in the midst of doing that, I realized I loved helping people. It didn't matter if, if they were homeless. Like I loved That's helping correct. people experiencing homelessness. But then I realized I just really liked helping people. So it moved from just this like first sense of, of, of a calling to work in, in the homeless community with the people experiencing that to going, no, I just want to help people. And if I can help people become leaders who are going to help people, wow, I'm really helping even more people now. And it wasn't that I was trying to have this quantifiable uh, greatness of being able to help people, but I wanted to just make sure that I was helping people where I was making an impact. And so continue to work in the homeless community, and I continued to start 
building up this, this ability to consult and coach and train and facilitate for other people to say, here's how you can be better too. Here's how you can be a greater leader. Here's how you can transform your organization or start that organization that you want to and really turn it into something great where you're doing something to better other people. Yeah, those are great points. So you started an organization which ended up teaching others so that they are able to help the homeless also. Yeah, and to help in whatever way they want to help. Like, like I recently started working with a lady who wanted to start an organization. Really, she didn't want to start an organization. She wanted to start providing life skills classes to people experiencing, um, people who were in the foster care system. And in the midst of, of helping get that going, it was, it was, hey, look, if you want to be able to do it to the scale that you're talking about, you're going to have to have the, the legal protection that comes with being an entity, and you're going to need people who can support you with, with finances and resources that you're going to need. So maybe you should start pursuing this, this nonprofit goal. And because I had been through that process myself and helped other people to do that, I was able to walk them through those steps and, and make it to where they could go in and, and not just help, but do it in a way that's going to have a lasting impact because they can continue to help. So it didn't even have to, to be limited to, you want to help people experiencing homelessness, so let me jump in there with you, as much as now it's, a, hey, you just want to help people, and I want to help you help people. Yeah, that's great. So it's pretty much formed into amalgamation of groups that all help others. Right. So what are your responsibilities now? Well, a couple of things. Uh, my, my day job, so to speak, is I'm the chief operating officer for the Chattanooga Community Kitchen, and we're a full-service center for people experiencing homelessness or on the verge of homelessness, where they can come in and, of course, get a meal. As it says in the name, we're a community kitchen, and we have housing, and we have shelters, and we have case management. We have job training programs. We have all these things going on where we can meet those most basic needs of people and, and then push them towards self-sufficiency. So they can come to us to, to get the meal, to get the change of clothes, to get out of the weather. And then we're going to take the, okay, we gave you the fish. Now we're going to teach you how to fish and we're going to push you towards self-sufficiency. I love so that. So that's, that's my, my day job. Now, outside of that, I, I continue to do this, this consulting in management development, leadership development, uh, organizational change. I, I work with uh, a group called Appreciation at Work. Uh, some people may be familiar with the book by Dr. Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages. And he wrote another book with a, a guy named Dr. Paul White called The Five Languages of Appreciation in the Workplace, where they took those languages that had really saved millions of people's marriages and said, what happens if we apply these same principles in the workplace? And suddenly it was transforming workplace cultures and people were having these, these great workplace professional relationships <laughs> because they, they knew how to let each other know that they were valued for who they are rather than just as a work unit. And, and that has been transformative. And so as uh, Dr. Chapman was, was actually a, a speaker when I was going through my PhD program, he lived in the same town where I got my PhD, which was in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. and. He, he was telling us about all of this. And so I, I connected with 
Dr. White and the organization that he started on the workplace appreciation and became a certified facilitator and, and premier partner in the training model that they had put out. And so that's something that I do now is facilitate that training to bring those five languages into the workplace and help people transform the culture by saying, hey, you know what? I can appreciate you for the great human being that you are, for the kind, compassionate person that you are, for the person who shows up reliably every day. And it doesn't just have to be because you're a hard worker or because you're a top performer or because you're a good salesman or because you're great at customer service. So we, we learn to value the people around us. And when people feel valued, they, they stick to those people. Uh, you know, we learned back in, in 2015 when Gallup really kind of dropped this bombshell on the world and said, you know, three decades of study and 27 million people, I think it was. And the basic conclusion is people quit people, not jobs, not company. And it, it's uh, a lot of that comes down to they don't feel valued. I mean, we know that four out of five people will cite they didn't feel appreciated as a key reason in why they even started looking for another job. So right. if we can change the workplace to say, hey, you know what, let's make people feel valued and, yeah, and not through, you know, just simple, you know, let's give them a pen because they've been here for a year. But, you know, that human being has value and let's treat them like that going all the way back to what, what really inspired me into homeless services is let's recognize the person as this valuable thing and let's make sure that they know we recognize the value in them. And when we do that, suddenly we start seeing reduced turnover, higher employee engagement, people who are sticking with it. And when you have people who stick with their job, they, they do better. Your, your customers Definitely. are happier. Your profitability gets better. Your workplace environment gets better. You actually have fewer accidents on the workplace when you have these greater cultures. You have fewer call-ins. People get sick less because of the, the real mind-body connection that we have. And it just makes everything better for everybody when we recognize the value that we have in each other. So that's a lot of what I do now is, is help people to do that in their workplace because one of the main areas of focus in my PhD studies was a phenomenon we call emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I, the, the model of emotional intelligence that I, I spent time on was the Genos uh, emotional intelligence model, which it, it actually comes out of Australia at the Genos International Organization. Right. So what you're referring to in terms of emotional intelligence is EQ? It is. That, that is exactly what it is. EQ, it, you, you know, the Q is for quotient. So it's just a form of measurement of that emotional intelligence. And the, the folks at Genos International designed their model of, of, of emotional intelligence. It's not really a, their model. It's their way of, of measuring it in how it's applied in the workplace specifically. So others are just like, in general, how are you emotionally intelligent in your life, with your family, with your friends, with your colleagues and all of that. But Genos really focused in on the workplace. And so when I can match that, that, that I learned with emotional intelligence, with the appreciation at work, I realize emotional intelligence is the engine that drives that for yeah. most people. And when you marry those two point. things together. Yeah, as you were saying. Oh uh, yeah. So when you, when you marry those two things together and recognize what they're doing, 
it, it's like a, a a punch out. You know, it's like you you imagine someone like Mike Tyson, you know, with that knockout blow, <laughs> and and it's because you figured out sort of this this perfect marriage of of ideas and approaches to really making everybody's workplace better. Yeah, you made very interesting points. I reckon businesses sometimes don't value their employees as much as they should, as they focus on the financial gains, but not on the well-being of the employees, which in fact make the financial gains in the business possible. And then that makes it more difficult for the employees to commit more, because it's like a trade-off relationship when the employers focus on making as much money as possible so that the employees are not as recognized as they really should be. Absolutely. What most people don't think about in their organization is that turnover, employee turnover, is the highest non-budgeted, non-beneficial expense that they have in their workplace. Turning over an employee can be 50% to 200% of that employee's annual salary to replace them through the, the hiring process and the training and the onboarding and the getting them out on their own to pick up and, and be caught up to where the person who left was by the time they left. You're talking about a significant amount of money that gets spent to do that. And when you do that, you've, you've lost everything that you had before with the other person. You're starting over with the new person and you're spending all this money on it that you just didn't have to if you had treated them better than a work machine and actually recognized the value that they have as a human being. Yeah. So just linking your past to the present circumstances, you know how in rural areas where everybody knows one another, but now more people are living in cities, it's more likely that people don't know others on a personal level. So do you think that this has changed the culture of how people treat one another? I think that we are seeing this idea of individualism that is stepping in to such an extreme level of mind your own business, that's their problem, you deal with your problems, they didn't ask you for help, so stay out of it, no matter what it is, that we, we forget that we are communal creatures. When you look at... The, the, the neuroscience that, that examines the brain and, and the interactions that people have and what it does to us as people, what it does to our moods, what it does to our health, what it does to our just overall well-being. When we are in community with other people, we are engaging with other people, we are at a, a, the greater ability to be peak performers as human beings in everything that we do. As we isolate ourselves, we are really stunting ourselves in what we can do as a human being, as, a, as this amazing complex creature that roams the earth at the top of the food chain and builds skyscrapers and flies through the air and, and sails underwater and does all these cool things. We do that. You look at how we got all of these great things we have, it's because we did it in a sense of community. We did it working Definitely. together. And when we take ourselves away from that, we get Instagram influencers who fade out in six weeks because they're not really doing community. They're just them. And it's not to say there's not plenty of great Instagram influencers, but I'm, I'm really talking about more of just that. I am this person. Everyone's going to love me because I am me. And then maybe they do for a few weeks and then they move on to the next person and then to the next person. 
and to the next person. And their, their social media influence dies with their personality, whereas a thought leader is somebody who brings people together in community. Uh, an inventor brings people together with ideas. And that's where we see all the great things in history that are coming from is us working in community with each other. Yeah, I agree. So what opinions would you give for people who are striving to become thought leaders and helping others? Keep doing it. Don't stop. You have to take one step at a time. And everybody wants everything right now. At least that's what we especially experience here in the United States and, and, and a lot of other... I definitely agree. Uh, you know, the, the Western world perspective. And the problem with that is we think that because we can sit down and watch a two-hour movie and see this rags to riches story, that we can do it in two hours in real life. And we, obviously we can't, but it's, it's, it's one percent at a time pushing towards that. If you want to be a thought leader in emotional intelligence, cool. First learn the definition of emotional intelligence. First learn how to say emotional intelligence. Then, you, you know, figure out what it is and figure out the branches of emotional intelligence and figure out who the people are who, who really kind of found this phenomenon that we talk about in, in modern times and then how it was talked about a hundred years ago in the 1920s when uh, you know, another guy was talking about it, but he was calling it something different. And, and just keep building on that one step at a time. And, and suddenly, if, if each day you do one thing, it takes you five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour to build you up towards that. Imagine if, if you became 1% smarter in that area each day, that in one year, You've become over 300% smarter at that top. Yeah. In two years, that's over 700% smarter. In just two years, you're 700% smarter than you <laughs> were when you started your journey. Yeah. Like, wow. I mean, it's not two hours, it's two years, but that's still pretty impressive. Yeah. So it's pretty much learn as much as possible so that you can be the most informed. And that way, you can make optimal decisions and come up with ideal outcomes. And, and take Viktor Frankl's approach, you know, and go through that experience thinking about how you're going to teach somebody else. Yeah, that's a good point. So what do you tell the listeners to those who aspire to improve their own lives but are experiencing self-doubt? When you have a little bit of doubt, that means you're probably doing the right thing because you're, you're really feeling the pressure of overcoming something big. You know, you, you think about the, uh, that, that old question of how do you eat an elephant? And the question is one bite at a time. You'd have a lot of doubt with yourself. Like, am I ever going to have enough bites to f ever get through this elephant? But it, it's like, if you're having that moment of self-doubt, can I do this? Then that means you should pursue it. Because if it's going to give you doubt, it's going to be a challenge. And when you face that challenge, and you overcome that challenge, and you make progress towards that challenge, you're going to feel such a great feeling of accomplishment, but you won't feel any accomplishment if you don't try. Yeah, that's true. As Descartes, the French philosopher said, doubt is the beginning of all wisdom. Mm -hmm. And you just summarized that point. So where can the listeners find you? 
They can find me by going to drjimmyturner.com. That's drjimmyturner.com. Uh, I'm on there. I also am the co-host of a podcast called Let's Talk. You can find it on Spotify, Apple, most of the places you listen to podcasts. Uh, there's a lot of podcasts called Let's Talk. So you look up Let's Talk and Dr. Jimmy at the same time, and that'll probably help you to find it. But drjimmyturner.com or uh, look up the Let's Talk podcast, and that's the easy way to find me. Well, it was nice having you on here, Dr. Jimmy. Well, thank you, Mark. It was great to be here and uh, get a chance to share. So I hope from this episode that you obtained some insights on how people form the motivations to achieve what they aspire to achieve.